Hi folks, this is Jeremy, your host. Just want to give you a little heads up that this episode is the first of a two-parter with Adam and Andy from Cosmic Monkey Comics in Northeast Portland. Also, there's some mic buzz on this one on my mic because I am that good in recording engineer. But the stories that Adam and Andy tell, as well as our weird digressions into everything from, oh, visits to Canada, stories about Todd McFarlane, a discussion of Bob Mould writing for pro, res- pro wrestling, that kind of a thing. And without further ado, here we go. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. So I think I'm mostly going to talk about the uh, Beverly Hills Hillbillies movie. uh, Co-starring the late... um, Jim Varney. The late Jim Varney in a non-earnest role. Yeah, uh, he was fantastic in that. And um, very restrained. I was restrained. He he respected the source material. I never actually... I did... See, did they fit? Awesome. There we go. Oh, yeah. I felt like the the Jim Varney Beverly Hillbillies had about the same level of uh, police (laughs) procedural mistakes as a Luke Cage show. Are we on right now? Hey, all right, that's good. Well, I, think, um, I guess either you know, both both uh, both inter- bits of entertainment are um, are kind of see uh, C- well, not quite CSI, but I want to say both are um, uh, fantasy versions of reality. Yeah, they're both they the genre tropes are such that let me move this a little bit that um, fidelity to you know fidelity to reality. It's occasionally even less than even than even like a goddamn CSI show. CSI is not quite realistic. No, but it's not. It's but, but it's, it's very compelling. Yeah, and it, engaging. It, it presents itself as realistic, which is uh, which means that because as, as as pointed out everywhere, um, we use uh, we use narrative to model the model aspects of the of the world that we do not encounter firsthand which is why it's kind of people believe stuff like how uh like how how firearms work in reality Mm -hmm. versus how they work in movies because yeah it sort of leaves people who have firsthand experience out of the narrative because it's immediately off-putting and it draws you out of Mm -hmm. what you're watching yeah you're like oh that's not how they do it yeah it's the similar to the it's like seeing a person with two heads, and you're like, you know, I've never seen a person with two heads, but I'll, it, I I'll guess pay attention. I'll yeah. see where you're going with or it. Or that is, like, I guess, how it, yeah, the, it's the, the most, <laughs> the more you know about a subject, the, uh, I guess, the more you realize how how much of it get, is just almost usually always, like, really, like, lazily inaccurate or, like, horribly depicted, which is interesting when, say, something like My Cousin Vinny I think there's like that little raft of stories about how that you know the actual all the courtroom stuff was it was it was reportedly you know people they talked to lawyers and like lawyers like yeah this is how it works you know so it's like, <laughs> it's like you know so it's um they got some of it right yeah Excellent. verisimilitude from surprising sources similarly it, did you guys see the Martian yeah the uh, the bit that I had that I la- just had to laugh out loud at is again um, because movies are made by a mix of. In, uh, of creatively intelligent people, 
but um, governed by stupid people. The uh, it's like how do the yes. filmmaker uh, how do the filmmakers how do, how um, it's like they don't they don't necessarily know how to portray intelligent people in means that can be communicated to less than intelligent people. Mm. And I can there's <laughs> but the scene that made me laugh is. The scene that made me laugh, aside from the ones that's their audience, yeah. Well, no, it, it, either just um, you know broad audience, not you know, not that it's like oh I'm so smart or something, but it's just kind of there are ways to portray intelligence, um, and then <laughs> I guess it, it's, it's like the difference between intelligent people and um, someone you know intelligent people versus the um somebody like Newt Gingrich who would be uh, best described as a stupid person's idea of a, of, of a smart person <laughs> but like one of the bits of one of it's the martian that made me laugh was the um the montage of Donald Glover's computer geek character like thinking and doing whatever and just like you know hiding out in the, com the computer banks and like with this little monitor just saying you know calculating 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 calculation done 100% and just but the fact that just I just had to laugh of like it was um like the most like thickest way of of showing like yeah this is how you know we can't we have no idea how to pro how to portray what this guy you know the conceptual gymnastics this guy is doing so we will just put him on a thing where we will just have him running a little computer program where um you know you get like a little number or a progress bar where he was like sitting he was leaning against some computer banks wasn't he yeah and I mean, was was he actually plugged into him right directly? i think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i think he was because that does seem yeah. a little bizarre but i just that but it was like yeah. both yeah both he felt the need to actually be in there because i guess um i guess you know ethernet cables are not a thing you know the distributed networks don't work like that <laughs> he, was pretty or, he tripped a lot yeah, in that movie yeah he was very clumsy in that movie was, oh yeah well, he's, he needed to be very he needed to go direct to the source yeah all of the um yeah because you you can only um Intelligent people are, you know, the the subject the SMEs, the subject matter experts, always have to be portrayed as if they are on the spectrum. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, how do you, you know, how do you portray, you know, how do you code someone on screen um, as being like, you know, a smart nerdy type? Other than like, right. let's let's ratchet those characteristics up. But the yeah, you know, but the just but the, the there was the shot of him like just kind of thinking in the little in the like calculation done or on the little screen that he was looking at. I just just had to laugh at and of course the other one the other one that really made me laugh was the scene where they're all sitting in a boardroom and you have sean bean explaining a reference to lord of the rings mm -hmm. to everybody else in the boardroom what the hell is project elrond i had to make something up yeah, but elrond because it's a secret meeting how do you know that why does elrond mean secret meeting the council of elrond is from lord of the rings it's lord the meeting the where they decide to Destroy the one man. I'm going to call something Project Elrond. I would like my code name to be Glorfindel. I hate every one of you. That was a nice touch. That was, yeah. Well, it all they ate had meta. to eat. Okay. Oh, what? I was going to say, in their defense, all they had to eat was corn at that point in human history. Corn was the only food left. Remember? Everything else had died. Oh, yeah. It was... All they had to eat was corn. Yeah. The... Okra was extinct in The Martian. I don't remember that. No, well, it's... Oh, uh, wait, I mixed it up with Interstellar, you yeah, guys. Yeah, uh, but the other, no. the other, yeah, the other outer space... Wait, no, they had more than eat corn. All right, yeah, the other, take it back. The other outer Rewind. space uh, fall scheduled blockbuster uh, astronaut film that featured both Matt Damon right. and Jessica Chastain. You're, uh, you're, getting your, uh, you're getting your blockbusters confused. <laughs> well, they're a power couple that doesn't exist, but in my mind, they're all that is. Yeah, they are, they are linked somehow.
Hi, everybody. You are you have been listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I am your host, Jeremy. I'm here with two guests here from, um, well, let them introduce themselves uh, from Cosmic Monkey Comics. We have Andy oh. Johnson. And my name is Adam Healy. And uh, they have thankfully donated some of their uh, early Saturday evening to coming down to our palatial and scenic basement studio apartments, or rather, basement apartment studios. Can you really have a Can you really have a basement studio apartment? They're mostly all basement studios. No, okay. Because I always think that you know, I, I I would I think a studio and I think almost like loft or something. It's can you have a basement loft? You know, I don't know. I don't know either. Oh, at some point this turn this mm. turns into like a Gallagher uh, a Gallagher routine, but I think you can. That's a challenge, but I would accept. I guess the you in know my basement. I'll make a little loft. Yeah, the uh, you just it, put a bunk bed in, and then the top bunk is a loft, right? Uh, no, that's. I think that I think more of you have to get you have to get college students like really broken, kind of hungover college students to build it out of shitty lumber, usually on moving day for way too high a price. It's kind of like what we had when we moved into the space we're in now at Cosmic Monkey. Um, there was a very poorly put together loft. That we dismantled and left the uh, a concrete footprint up there. The loft had extended far out from where it is now currently, and we had to have that dismantled because it wasn't quite safe. Yeah, originally when we moved in, it was uh, built as four thousand square feet, and I think when we took that some of that loft area was considered footage, so we lost some footage there, but we gained a lot of. Uh, Openness. Get right up and, on there. Uh, no, no, uh, right on the front. Yes. And there we safety, go. because the floor wasn't going to fall onto the other floor. The top floor doesn't fall to the bottom floor. Do you remember those rooms? Crash people. Underneath that loft? They yes. All, they all had carpeting on all over the walls and ceiling. Wow. <laughs> carpeting on the walls is not good anywhere ever. It's I would not just a good like look. to suggest. What about, the, what about the interior of a panel van? Hmm. Maybe if it's a loft. <sighs> I just flash back to something horrible in a million ways. <laughs> I did do. Uh oh, the same van. Oh no, that explains a lot. When did you guys first move in? Valentine's Day, two thousand seven. Really? Was that the start of the shop, or had you uh, you guys been located elsewhere? We were in Gateway before that. Um, Custom Tower Records, one hundred second and Clackamas Street, which is one block south of Halsey. And we were there about three and a half years, and then well, at three years we found the other location and we tried keeping both going for about six months and um it was really hard doing two locations so we ended up closing the original store okay i don't think i ever i don't think i've ever i've um i got here in september i've been here 12 years as of last month i've got here september of, of 04 and i don't think i ever i think I ever, I ever encountered your shop on the it other side pretty, it was 800 square feet it was very uh very small small comic yeah small like strip mall comic place or yeah, it had parking. It was definitely a strip mall, but um, um, we used the uh, we used the space uh, um, pretty efficiently. I guess as we tried to use every square inch as as well as we could. It was a tiny version of what we've got going on now. The kids section we had an all ages section. Graphic novels were separate from the new comics. It was a far smaller version of what we've got going on now. We yeah, back then, I mean, graphic novels have grown so much over the last decade but back then we still had a huge amount of graphic novels but i mean it's hard to say but just thinking back um the amount of back the amount of space back issues took in that store 
took up like I don't know. It was most of the floor space. Yeah, yeah, was most back of the, Yeah, and you make and you don't sell a lot of back issues, but they take up a lot of space. No, and now we're lucky to have a separate room for the back issues, so we don't have any of the main floor space taking taken up by the back issues. It's mostly graphic novels now. Yeah, the uh, back issue, our back issue room is roughly about the size of the old store. Also, to give you <laughs> okay, an idea. nice. Yeah, that's... and it feels about the same. That ship has sailed. I'm still smarting from that interstellar Martian confusion because <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's such a great joke because all I had to eat was corn, but that was a whole other movie. <laughs> we were so confused. Damn, I was like, oh, I was th- I, it was much like a... Yeah, uh, you guys looked at me like I just said that uh, Trump was a woman. Yeah. Which, oh, wouldn't that just blow everyone's mind? Especially this yeah. week. Especially if he grabbed his own. Meow. Yeah. Topical humor himself because he has no respect for himself as a woman. Yeah, coming up. Yeah, it's well. Don't worry. It'll be an episode of. uh, It'll be an episode of Black Mirror slash Twilight Zone within twelve months. So, yeah. Well, transgender Trump is trending on Instagram right now, and uh, and in a silence (laughs) struck the crowd. I guess. I guess. I guess. Consider that possibility. I guess I was gonna say. I guess you know topics can trend on Instagram. I was. Yeah. Because I always, I've never seen, uh, I've never, Instagram doesn't really have the ready-made trending topics list that like Twitter does, does it? Yeah, like Twitter, that old thing, Twitter. Uh, you know, this is a weird segue, but going back to what we were talking about a little bit ago about scientists and uh, have, how and they corn. are portrayed in movies or whatnot. But uh, recently there was an interview, a, a, a podcast interview with Alan Alda, and he was talking about, um, what was that TV show he used to do for PBS about... Scientific American, I think. Yeah, yeah, and his. Uh, I didn't ever, I never. And saw he that. wasn't a scientist, but his whole premise of it was just to kind of try to help scientists explain their message. Yeah, to be a presenter. Yeah, to and to translate because most the average person doesn't know what a lot of the scientific terms mean or whatnot, and so here and he was trying to help create a dialogue between, to help people understand. Which is, um, yeah, which yeah. is critical. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just thought that, I don't know, I was Which, I meant to say yeah. that earlier, but didn't see him at a time. It kind of recalls uh, Richard P. Feynman, who would tell his colleagues, if you can't explain your complicated ideas in simple terms to someone who has no idea what you're talking about, then you don't understand what you're talking about. Which made a lot of very s- smart people feel dumb for a second, because... You have to know what you're talking about to be able to explain it to someone who has no idea what you're talking about. Similar to the scene in the beginning of one of my favorite uh, films about smart smart people, you know, uh, ostensibly or not, a real genius, <laughs> starring um, still fresh faced Val Kilmer. Yes, the and popcorn scene of all time. Oh yeah, you keep talking about corn. It's so much a part of our being. But the fabric uh, of our country has corn interwoven all through it. But I think the I think the opening the opening scene of that is set where we meet young Mitch, the kid who you know the, the little 15 year old who gets drafted into this uh you know tossed into you know soon to be tossed into the wonderful statutory world that is uh college full of like 18 year olds yes and uh but the the, the scene where he's just exp- he's explaining his experiment to his parents and yeah and the his, relatable nerd who didn't show up in any other movies yeah or much the, like uh anthony michael hall's co-star in weird science which co-star uh, his best friend in the movie? Oh, um, 
Who's that guy? I, he wasn't in anything else, was he? Uh, no, it was um, David. Oh no, uh, the Carradine. Uh, was it Keith or Kevin Carradine? I think it was what? Keith. What? Car- that was a Carradine kid. That was a Carradine kid. Wow. I believe, wow. unless well, without it's... without grabbing a phone and looking it up, but no, as as, as the I'm awesome that you know that that's so trivial. Okay, but uh, yeah, what I, else was well, he in? Anything? Uh, he was in. A, he was in a couple. Of, wait, wasn't he in? Um, no, he. From what I thought, he was in Christine, but I think that's somebody else. But um, he was. Oh, no, he's Christine. been. Who he's was been. Christine. He, he was in. He was, was Christine, the kid from uh, The Outsiders. Probably he would have been. Um, he would have been that era. Thomas Howell. No. 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 Wasn't he? Seen Thomas Howell was the older brother in E.T. and later star in the Hecklevision favorite of Soul Man. Yeah, the uh, that was the end of his career for sure. Or was it? I actually kind of like that movie. Is that bad to say? I don't know if I ever saw it, honestly. What E.T.? Yeah, plenty of people like E.T. No, <laughs> I just remember. I, I I just remember seeing like bits about it when it came out thirty years ago, and then kind of just completely forgot about it until uh, they they did it for on uh, for Hecklevision earlier this year. Oh, you know, Julie Louis Dreyfus was in Soul Man, which I only know because she referenced it in her monologue on SNL, and they couldn't show a scene from it because everything was so inappropriate <laughs> for modern audiences. Mm-hmm. Also, Ray Dong Chung, uh, Tommy Chung's daughter, and co-starred in, in oh. Commando. And, and uh, Quest for Fire. Quest for Fire never actually saw. Oh. That was Ron Perlman's first role. Right. Yes. Welcome to a podcast where we talk about movies we haven't actually seen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. No. Putting us in a, at least more honest stead than plenty of, uh, of film right. conversations out Quest, there. I didn't see Quest for Fire either. Did you? Did they ever find that fire? No, and I didn't see Clan of the Cave Bear either, but I oh, feel like I did they're see the that. same movie. I saw Clan of the Cave Bear. Quest for Fire and Clan of the Cave Bear. If they, where's the third movie that is the sequel to both of Caveman, them? Caveman. Caveman. Star. Oh, thank was you. It, was, was it Caveman or was, it, or was that? 10,000 BC. No, what about, what, what, was, wasn't there one called Iceman? Yeah, Iceman was good actually. I saw that they showed us that that in high school actually as a educational film. Hmm. They showed us Peggy Sue got married, and now we can talk about all of Nicolas Cage's films. Oh, so many! And this brings They're us back great. to what I mentioned earlier when saw earlier this week the uh, the original Wicker Man. It's remade. You know, it's I believe Abel Ferrara directed remake. Did wow. he do, did he direct that? That one that starred Nicolas Cage in a bear suit. Ah, I remember that name sounds familiar. What else, what else has he done? Abel Abel Farrar? Fr- yeah, not Nicolas Cage. Oh, uh, bad. Yeah, the fr- yeah. I think he did the first Bad Lieutenant. Wow, that film is awesome. Um, in so many horrible and great ways. It's okay. And I think my favorite scene in that movie is when he's crying. He's naked, has his arms out like Jesus, and he's just crying because he's so sad. Oh. That was that was a pretty intense movie. Harvey Keitel, yeah, he was not a good. That was guy right after movie. the uh, right after the piano, wasn't it? Huh. Yeah, maybe. He was originally supposed to be in Apocalypse Now. In your Netflix queue, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> There's no queues anymore, people. Yeah, just add it to as they say. Uh, I'm adding it to my queue. It was, uh, for a while, became the modern equivalent of checks in the mail. And speaking of uh, naked crying Harvey Keitel in a Christ-like pose, what drove you to wanting to open up a comic shop in the in the odd economic pop cultural terrain that was the uh, the the pre uh, you know the Marvel almost bankrupting itself era of like what the late nineties early aughts? Yeah, well, it all goes back to the twentieth century. As so many things bankrupted do. itself in uh, ninety five or ninety six. Yeah. 
one of the two. So ninety five or ninety six. Yeah, the, the uh, yeah. Tell. They were morally bankrupt before that. Though. It's so many years before that, but uh, yeah, they went bankrupt and still happened to uh, put out some comics and keep going. Like their bankruptcy didn't seem to impact their production schedule. Probably just was a good excuse to be like, we can't pay you artists and writers who are responsible for everything we do. But we will sell off uh, the film rights to your creations for very, ch you know, for relatively cheap amounts what to was the, the wrong people. Marvel-based movie. It was the 21st century. Uh, Mar uh, the present-day Marvel, because no, there was like Spider-Man movies in the 70s. Well, yeah, but well, that doesn't count. Well, Japanese, I think Japanese Spider-Man. Why doesn't that count? Because uh, they were just jokes that were produced by other people outside of thing. They're like, hey, you want to buy the rights to the Spider-Man movie for 80 bucks? As a kid, but I saw realistically a hundred thousand dollars. They wouldn't hold up now, but as a kid, I love those. Movies. In the 70s, yeah, they sold the rights for literally for like ten thousand dollars in '69, and then again. In the mid early seventies, for thirty, forty thousand dollars, so tiny what you, amounts. What are you trying to figure out about? What, what was the first like modern Marvel movie? I guess Blade. Were there any in the nineties? Oh, yeah, Blade. Blade. When did Blade come out? Ninety eight. Okay, yeah, Blade. that's a good start. Not including, um, I think it took them forever to get it started. By that time, Heroes Reborn and Heroes Return had come and passed because it, yeah, and one, one of the eras where Marvel felt it was a good idea to give uh, money to Rob Liefeld again. So yeah. Those are both eras that people remember very fondly and are always arguing over the storylines and the characters. Or wait, no. I nobody ever brings it up at all. Ever. Memorable epochs. Oh, so in so, so in the so in the we, yeah. The store started as a buying club actually. We uh, worked at local comic book stores around town and then got fired for various reasons, mostly downsizing and thinning the ranks. So to speak, uh, store owners regaining control of their store layouts from rebel employees who would do things overnight without telling them. Such as? Such as just rearranging sections and like, hey, this will help you sell things better. And the owner like, no, it won't. You're fired. Thanks. I brought a couch in once. See you later, alligator. I was like, we need a couch. <laughs> wow. It's actually the couch we have. That upstairs. was foreshadowing. No. It is. It is that same hmm. couch. <laughs> I was like, Fantastic. we need a couch in here. People should feel more comfortable. Yes. And they were like, no. So we were all let go. And there were a few other people involved in the uh, Origins. Um, I don't know if they would want to be named. Maybe not. Maybe so. Probably not. You know him. I don't. So. I no. think so. I don't. I think I, I always give him, give him credit <laughs> coming up with the name. Is that what you're talking about? With, go ahead. Oh, well, Philip. Uh, Simone from Dark Horse. He is now a uh, international known editor of yes. manga and American comics. And um, at that point, we had already come up with a location and just needed a name. But this is after we're the Buyers ahead. Club. We are. Yeah, true. the Buyers Club started in 97, <laughs> 98, 6, 7, 8, around in those parts. This is now turning into an old man talk. Round back in the late nineties, well, mid to late nineties, and a young and a young man named Warren Ellis was just getting things up and running in the uh, in the Vertigo like, years. Oh, I've got a superhero character named Red Rose, and she's a serial killer. Anyway, are you talking about Transmet? Uh, Transmet and God, how many how many series did he do? Because and Transmet was actually originally uh, he not yeah Helix before it became Vertigo. Was it Helix first. or Legend or no? I think Helix. it was Helix. Yeah, it was, it was Helix. Helix. And originally yeah. that was going to be called Matrix, but then the Matrix movie came out and they had a uh, that imprint and they had to come up with a different name and that's where the Helix name kind of started from. It was originally in previews solicited as as uh, Matrix comics, which has nothing to do with a very popular late '90s Portland band, The Licks. 
It does that was not. Uh, made up of uh, half strippers and half dudes from other bands. I, I don't know. Oh, I see. But uh, and no, and no relation. Real band. No relation to Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks. No. Damn. It's funny you mentioned bankrupt uh, Marvel because when we had the Buyers Club at our house uh, or at my house, the uh, um, very few of us ever bought any more Marvel comics. It was like they were always so. Or I would, they just looked so bad back then in the late 90s. That was some of the worst comics. And now some of those are starting to get recollected from Marvel. And I was like, I can't believe these, these storylines are being recollected. They're yeah, they, so bad. It was the most recent low point for superhero comics. <laughs> like Marvel was doing poorly. DC was doing poorly. Vertigo was doing well. Yeah, I was going to say, I think... And the independents were doing well. Fanagraphics was having a, a resurgence. A lot of... Uh, pop culture people it was right um right when um i can't why i don't know why i can't remember who took over marvel when they gave the marvel knights the uh the whole marvel knights thing joe quesada that's when it all started to turn around is those four yeah i can marvel knight titles yeah I we remember, actually started to care about marvel again yeah i can remember when uh, was it priest who did when priest did uh black panther mm-hmm. that which was that was a that was that was a marvel knights title wasn't yep, it yep. this was because that era I was, that was the second half of, of my undergrad era. Because I did, uh, I was in, I, uh, li- living in Ann Arbor. Rest in peace, Dave's Comics 2. Greatest, uh, the greatest 90s comic book store, which wound up going up in smoke sometime in about, and I think they liquidated everything in like 97, 98 or so. For all the other comic shops to give her. But, God, I don't remember, um, I remember, let's see, I, I uh, I wasn't buying like a lot of Marvel stuff. I I think I, I I bought Incredible Hulk for way too long, but I do remember buying. Well, Peter David is yeah. one of the top writers in comics. Yeah, I do. I remember buying the uh, time. Yeah, I do remember. <laughs> who also wrote Star Trek novelizations that yeah, I that many. I did that I did listen and I sold tons more than his comics. Yeah, and then I did that I did uh, I did li- any which even had. Um, at least one of his books, Imzadi, had an audiobook version read and performed by um, by Jonathan Frakes. Nice. And the only reason I know that is because of the worst summer of my life, the summer of 1996, where I listened to my parents and decided to uh, uh, decided to get a job at a machine shop in Mount Morris, Michigan, where uh, it was like completely brain deadening and you know soul crushing. And at some point, back destroying because I had to stand all day, and you know, and I was going to a chiropractor like once a week just to get my, uh, just to get, you know, just like back therapy. As a young man, he was um, ain't got nothing in the world these days. No, that was the that was the summer I turned twenty. Uh, realized that I was clinically depressed, and would listen to uh, went to the lo- uh, the Flint Public Library, and would check out the maximum allowed number of audiobooks on tape. And I and I I think I wore out. One or two, I think probably two, uh, Sony t- uh, cassette Walkman because mm-hmm. I because I would just you know go at work, have my earplugs and have my mm-hmm. big clamshell headphones over that and just blast audiobooks into my head. Um, How many batteries all... would you go through a week? Enough. <laughs> I can remember, but everything like Stephen King's oh, batteries. Yeah, Stephen King's like nightmares and dreamscapes. With that was the uh, oh yeah. Uh, those are probably uh, I don't even know how many uh, these points. There's there, a cup of batteries over here, people. They, yeah, I don't. Even, uh, yeah, a huge mug of. I don't even know how many of those are still good. Mug o batteries. Yeah, on sale. But go, you know, listening to all that stuff and but the uh, anyway, talk that up because let's see the books I was buying back then. A lot of Dark Horse. Um, Peter anyth- David. Yeah, Peter David. 
That's where Dark Horse was doing the legends when he said legend earlier. Right. That, that legend imprint was Sin City and Hellboy. Right. And then the, in a couple of ones before, they just said the hell with it and just incorporated them back into it. But <laughs> a lot of Vertigo, because Vertigo was still, you know, Vertigo was still still chugging through. and um, They were doing some of their best stuff mm-hmm. in that time period, actually. I have fond memories of the uh, Peter David, Todd McFarlane debate. And I felt like the uh, recent, the first uh, Hillary Donald debate brought back uh, memories of the uh, Todd McFarlane, Peter David debate, hmm. where you've got someone who's literate and intelligent and can speak their mind and make sense, and then you've got someone who can draw. And which was which? <laughs> well, Todd McFarlane is a fantastic artist, but he is not a brilliant speaker, not incredibly a... articulate. His uh, plot lines and his scripting have probably left something to be desired for a lot of people over the years, which is why he has not been the consistent scripter or plotter on his ongoing Spawn book, which, strangely enough, is one of the longest ongoing titles in current comics. He has a $3 million uh, baseball, though. He does. He's got two baseballs, one that's (laughs) worth a few million dollars. Not anymore. Not anymore. It's gone up. No, no, no! I thought the I thought the price was no. He spent that much on those on on those yeah, yeah, baseballs, two together, I think which were which there were was subsequently one that was like half a million, and one was that one and a half million or two million or something. Yeah, which but yeah, spent that much on the the two collector collectibles, which mm-hmm. were sub. I think weren't they like subsequently like massively devalued thanks to Barry Bonds or was it Sammy Sosa? The uh, when Barry the, Bonds was the famous uh, drug testing guy. But didn't he also? But did yes. But didn't he also break the uh, break the um, the home run record? Yeah, the records. Which I think he did. That's the ball that Todd's got. Oh, he does. Or I thought it was, he's one of them. I thought. I thought there he, were I, two balls that broke the records within a year of each other, and Todd's got both of those balls. Gotcha. Two balls. He's got two balls. He's definitely got two two expensive balls. As we all look at each other and decide <laughs> whether or not to continue with this analogy or this uh, metaphor. But I heard a story that uh, somebody at a writer's camp who was a uh, eccentric artist took those two balls, held them behind his back, switched them around, and held them back out and said, you don't know which one's which, do you? But yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, maybe and, he's got... And then Todd beat the crap out of him. And that artist was Dave Sim. <laughs> you know, uh... Clayton Crane. Eric's, Eric, uh, who's in Savage Dragon? Eric, Eric Larson, Larson is Eric the Larson. savage ringer. Clayton together. Crane is supposedly the artist I heard that uh, oh, really? switched the balls around behind his back during a writer's conference. Writer's conferences are always very productive and meaningful for the people that are involved, but occasionally shenanigans do occur right. yep. that have uh, financial repercussions. Ball switching. For guys who don't care about how much money they've got. Or maybe they do. I don't know. Who's counting their pennies? I got a mug of batteries next to me. Mm-hmm. But is there a mug of pennies anywhere? In the other room. As a person who works retail and customer service, I've noticed recently that a lot of people are handing back pennies as if the penny has no value. It is. No, it, yeah. it brings concern to me. Uh, Why well, would. Do you haven't. When's the last time you visited Canada? It was. Uh, no. 2008. When I went up for the uh, crazy exhibition that was at uh, a Vancouver. Uh, museum. So, Crazy was an exhibition curated by Seth, Art Spiegelman, and oh, somebody else. But it was a uh, mixed... They put out a book, a hardcover book collection that documented the exhibition. Hmm. And it was a uh, comics, anime, manga exhibition. And they had original art up from 
uh, Binky Brown and the Virgin Mary. They had original art from Harvey Kurtzman, the, uh, some of his Korean war comics. They had uh, displays set up for a number of significant anime and manga that had been very important for people over the years. It was a pretty great exhibition. Were you there for the opening or just the exhibition? No, I just went. They had a room that uh, was playing anime 24 hours a day for a few days at least. That's uh, sim- how I was first exposed to anime. Motor City Comic Con, early ni- uh, first one I went to, I believe, was March of '92. They would have the they would have it in the screening rooms, which you'd go in and like, what you know, what the hell is this? You know, strange thing. And then you go outside, and there'd be guys there selling really crappy VHS dubs of the streamlined dub of Akira. Um, and on uh, speaking of of crappy dubs, let's take a quick break uh, and be right back right after this. I feel like Amy Schumer's got something to say about that. I don't know what. Something about what gore, the uh, related to her recent publication, uh, the girl with the lower black, the lower back tattoo. Oh, I listened to that whole book and it was fantastic, and I love her unconditionally in every way. But uh, now she talks about her. Uh, what was that thing that men never have to worry about? That hair extensions use for uh, birth control. IUD? Huh, IUD, that's the thing. Yes. Dental dam? What? Yeah, no, the IUD. Yeah, that uh, the IUD or the diaphragm. Because she'll joke about it falling out for some reason or another. Hmm. I think a diaphragm is more likely to fall out than an IUD, but maybe I'm not... I could be wrong about that, though. Well, one you actually oh, remove. Really? The other one just... one. Well, yeah, one you actually remove, one is implanted. Yeah. Oh, I'm bringing it back to comics. A very obscure comic reference. The O-ring was the ultimate prize in uh, Ragmop by Rob Walton? Oh, yeah, Walton, I think you're right. Does that sound right? Ragmop, a great comic from the late 90s. I think thinking Rob collected... Schwab, who did Scud. Yeah, Rob Schrab. That's right, that's right. Who was uh, actually a very successful director yeah. for TV and movies, for sure. But no, Ragmop is a very underappreciated comic book that uh, came out irregularly. As many independent alternative books did in the late '90s, early 2000s. Hey, I'm a, it was eventually collected. I was gonna say you don't have to mention that to me. I'm a huge fan of Evan Dorkin, so I'm used to the, uh, you know, the irregular, the, the irregularities of the pre-modern indie comic era, and of the recent era because Eltingville Club, Evan Dorkin's most recent collection and comic book series, was very delayed between issues three and four, I believe. I think there were only two issues, and those are delayed between one and two, yeah, or that. Yeah, he, well, he. I think he didn't. He, if not delayed, but d- weren't they effectively like a, a year apart? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, did you like? Uh, did you enjoy uh, Space Ghost, Space Ghost, Coast to Coast when he was working on it? The show. I didn't know he actually worked on the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I but no, I love the show, but um, in its proto adult uh, adult swim fo- uh, form, rest in peace. Um, C was it C Mar- C Martin Coker? The, I, I can't remember his name, but yeah, yeah he the um, yeah recently passed was away. He a writer and artist or something? No, he's Both. one of the voices. He oh. he was animator, oh, the voice of a guy. Okay, yeah, he voiced he was animator, one of the chief animators, as well as voice of Zorak and Moltar, or effectively, you know, two third, you know, uh, half of the character, half of the regular characters. But I uh, to bring it back earlier, I brought up going to Canada in terms of pennies and your. 
your 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 probable dismay over pennies because Canada discontinued its penny in in 2012. Wow, and we still have them here. You yeah. know why? Why? Because um, they're worth the same? No, no. Actually, well, do you know why? Uh, I know that they're a massive time sink and. I think it's what is it has to do with like what subsidizing copper nickel nickel production. Uh, this this, oh, this subsidies. This is from the West Wing, so this may not be a hundred percent accurate. Oh dear! <laughs> but uh, filter this through through uh, turn on uh, put on your Sorkin filters. <laughs> this information is not sourced. <laughs> but the uh, well, there's two reasons. One is well to to get rid of the penny. Whoever would have to vote for it. Two of the states that would have to vote for it, or one of them is. The lead supplying of, supplier of zinc, which pennies are mostly made out of now, right. and the other one is the home, um, the birthplace of Lincoln, and so they they think neither of those states are ever going to vote for it, and you would have to have w- at least one of those two states vote for it. The what way that the other forty nine states, uh, they probably wouldn't even show up. How many states do we have in this country? State of siege? Uh-huh. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, minor, minor, minor uh, callback to uh, the epic um, and prescient 1992-1993 film *Fear of a Black Hat*. I, anytime you feel a hatred towards pennies, this just popped in my head. I want you to start visualizing um, from Pee Wee's Playhouse that Penny Girl, and she has the pennies that roll. Yeah. Oh, no, it's time for a penny cartoon. And then you'll, penny. you'll start to like pennies after that. Again. Penny had a life outside of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, did she? she yeah, did. that was actually an independent short oh. produced by um, maybe Will Vinton back way back when. Penny. Oh, Penny. <laughs> ah, children of today. The world was so strange in the past. There's so many things that are not here anymore, like pennies, but they're still here, but not in Canada. Are they still there? They're just waiting to worm out or something. Like... They're, they they stopped being produced four years ago. If so, if you, uh, it's one of those things where I think it, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's effectively it breaks even between, you know, you just you you yeah. you you err on the nearest nickel. Did Canada survive that? Are they still around? I haven't been following. Them. When did cassette tape stop being produced? Because they're still around as well. Asbestos is still I feel like too. the uh, end date of production does not match with the end date of distribution. Mm. Eight, tracks, eight tracks were produced long into the 80s. So. Oh, man, eight tracks. I hear, um, I'm sure you guys have heard this too about cassette tape, or not, uh, VHS, VHS tapes. Like the, Jerry Maguire was supposed to be the most mass produced because um, that was like the height of VHS mass production, and that's mm-hmm. why that guy's going to build a whole pyramid out of. Oh, they already have the. I believe yeah. it's the Everything Is Terrible guys, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, if you if you didn't know the um, if you didn't know the the reference, there are there's a great group out there that does a lot of um, like a, a lot of like found VHS footage. A group called Everything Is Terrible. Uh, just Google everything is terrible. Go out, or you can find a lot of their a lot of their you know well edited compilations. Ignore the first ten results because they're all going to be Trump. Yeah. Well, that's that's more permutations on everything is terrible rather than the actual phrase. Because I believe they trademarked yes. the phrase, but they did do a project of just it's algorithms. You know, much like the red letter guys with um, somehow being being the uh, collectors of. Uh, inadvertent collectors of every Nuki tape in in existence. The, everything in Terrible Guys have been collecting, just at this point, just being sent from all corners. Uh, 
hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many thousand of Jerry Maguire VHS they now have. Like enough to, like enough that they built like this huge throne and dais. And like at some point you can actually build, you know, building a room out of it. Cameron Crowe even uh, dedicated one, like a signed copy or maybe a lot of copies, I'm not sure. But the director of Jerry Maguire, I thought that was pretty am- admirable. Because mm-hmm. it's actually, top, I actually love top. that movie. I think that's actually a great movie, but it's just, uh, I might be the minority in this room. Well, Did not... Moore would very much agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Fellow podcaster. Uh, much going, going back to our earlier theme of films we hadn't seen, I because Jerry Maguire came out when I was an undergrad and had limited access to a multiplex, because to get to the multiplex, you had to hop um, an AATA bus and uh, to get down to the uh, either the Briarwood Mall or to the Showcase Cinema, because this was... Saw it came out what sophomore junior year the year before it actually had a car on campus and that was Michigan yes and well, this is all Ann Arbor and so like uh, uh, I was benefit in that you know on campus we had not just like the campus screenings but also had the state theater which had two screens the Michigan theater which saw we saw crazy amounts of stuff and then there was even you know um, long ago the Ann Arbor one and two which eventually went away and became. For a while, was a web uh, became was renovated into offices of. I bring this up because I knew the part. I knew at least one of the principals involved because he was in my first existentialism class, um, and he was a shit talker even then. Even then, we renovated into. And this is the this is like ninety eight, very much dot com era. Was brought what brought um, renovated into the offices of a web startup. Done by a, um, which I believe the place eventually, God, what was it called? Like Web Elite or something like that. But eventually just went out of business and crashed in, you know, like so many other businesses did in the, uh, in the, in the early aughts. But, the dot-com era. Really so, yeah. fascinating. So but, yeah, because no, of that, you didn't see Jerry Maguire? Yes, exactly. Oh. It was also, it was kind of a thing, just getting, get, we were able to take the bus down to, we, we did take the bus and then had to take a cab, uh, a cab home when we went, when we, to go see First Contact, because that was also, oh. that was fall of 96. Oh, yes. But oh. did not see, did not have the similar drive to go see uh, a Tom Cruise film. Was that Matthew McConaughey's third or fourth film? Extravaganza. Which which one? First Contact. He was in. I didn't remember that. Oh yeah, he was a big part of First Contact with Jodie Foster. No, you're thinking of Contact. That was. Oh, con- oh my what's God! First Contact. That I'm was a Star Trek movie. You're, you, no more space references. Uh, when, when, when you encounter <laughs> when you encounter the Adam in the Wild, cue him. You know, cue him on movie trivia and see which First contact. What? Wait, that Star Trek movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the Star Trek film yeah. where they d- directed by John, the the previously mentioned Jonathan Frakes, where they deliberately in complete a fantastic film, but with no Matthew McConaughey at or, all, or corn, or corn. Because Corn was very gone in Star Trek: First Contact, although it did Quite have the, the opposite of Interstellar. Well, that they had that Quest for Corn movie that came out, didn't they? Strangely but, enough, that is the year of Corn's highest popularity, or or as the or as the or as the native nations known it know it, Maze. Yes, and that band Maze did not do as well as Corn. Did you ever read Serial Killings? 
James I Stern? didn't know. I I remember I read everything by him, but that I remember the serial killer from the the uh, the storyline from Constantine, where at one point takes place. Uh, they go to a conven- a serial convention. Oh yeah, God, what was the Sandman. name of that was Sandman? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Wait, no, it, it wasn't. Sand, no, it was. I think was it Constantine because at one point one of the serial killers had uh, that was Sandman. Had, that was Sandman. Corinthian, Corinthian. Yeah. the Corinthian. Yeah, exactly. All right, I'm sorry. I my, okay. I uh, I am confusing my own '90s pop culture <laughs> and uh, following up mid '90s vertical plot lines. That's okay. Sandman was crossing in, the streams. Sandman, Hellblazer was in Sandman. So That's true. They're all. It's all connected. Yeah. It's all it's all a rich tapestry. Everything's all right, terrible. so you got comic swamp man, which you know co co starring Adrian Barbeau. Uh, when I believe she was was she still married to John Carpenter at that point? I wonder if she holds the record for the most different characters on Fantasy Island. And this is going deep into obscurity, and uh, most of our listeners do not know anything about... Was she the plane? Fantasy Island. No, Fantasy... Everyone remembers Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island was the that short-lived kind of uh, fantastical drama starring um, Malcolm McDowell. Captain Steubing. It, it pains me to hear you say short-lived, because I feel like it had a very <laughs> long life and a very big footprint on... The culture of the 20th century. Why did they give Khan that island? Because he'd earned it by that point. <laughs> they, they, you know, they exiled him for a reason. So here, he decided to be to industrialize it and open it up as a tourist destination until the volcano uh, blew up the planets and they all and uh, you know, uninhabitable. Yeah, it there became were so yeah. few tattoo parlors in those days. It was SETI Alpha Five. Anyway, oh Ricardo Montalban and uh, Zorro the Gay Blade. I love that movie. Star- I can't remember much of it. I it, I do enough. Again, '90s underground life. A v- favorite. Well, definitely a um, cheaply acquired and thus heavily in heavy rotation film on the uh, pre South Park Comedy Central. Oh, Zorro. With uh, with the uh, uh, Ricardo. With the, the 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 American with the odd the what the featuring the American with the oddest skin, oddest orange and pink skin, um, to date before certain presidential candidates, George Hamilton. Is he still alive? Probably. Is he one of the Colonel Sanders and then KFC commercials? He has to have been. Is Norm Macdonald one of them? Yes. Yes, Norm Macdonald is one of them. Jim Gaffigan is one of them. Gaffigan is one of them. Uh, Dolph, I believe Dolph Ziggler is one of them because they had him do the uh, when uh, um, the Colonel as pro wrestler, which I believe was Dolph Ziggler. Were you asking about? I didn't see that. AKA one. Jack George Swagger. Ham- was George Hamilton the one you were wondering if he was one of the KFC guys? Oh, interesting. Yeah, because there's one of the uh, Colonel Sanders who's very burnt looking and he references his own burnt skin Uh and that was a famous joke about george hamilton that was sort of like an in joke and he was totally cool with it about his fake tan what was that vampire love at first bite was that his vampire movie oh yes that was that was really good it's not better than zorro the gay blade those i remember seeing around the same time were really great that, can I say my favorite line from Zorro the Gay Blade? Oh, good. oh dear God. Yeah, first result. George Hamilton is the extra crispy colonel. So. It is him. Oh, uh, my God. But, ladies and gentlemen, so pop culture is... half as ignorant as I think I am. At some point, when pop culture won and was victorious over all aspects, when thanks to the internet permuta- permeating and uh, permutating into all of our lives, um... With it, which accompanied by the ascendancy of nerd shit, which I did actually one of the things I did want to talk about 
is how is the ascendancy of nerd shit? You know, have you been? You guys have you guys have been you know some old players in the game this long. Have you seen um, palpable results from that? But pop culture, at least, like I said, it's eight percent increase in yeah. sales. Oh, sales eight percent. But yeah, but the point I want to be you know, with the explosion of pop culture ruining, uh, well, ruining and winning everything. Just um, yeah, we live in an era where where multiple you know multiple kernels are a thing, that, uh, you know, in and above. Okay, beyond the the function of merely running TV adverts right. to sell you a chicken franchise, none of us are going to KFC for any reason. But Wait, we're all paying attention to the colonels. There was a KFC right down the street heroes. that closed down. Just, yeah, because at least a year or two ago, those yeah. hilarious colonel DC commercials. Comics, DC Comics did like a colonel on Infinite Earth like comic a year or so ago. I don't know where where it was. I remember seeing the images online. I don't know where you got this comic or the fantastic thing about this comment is that I we work in a comic shop together. We own this place together and we're <laughs> both there almost every day looking at every comic that comes through the doors. I have no memory of this. I've never heard I've of I've only seen it online and I don't think it was ever, it was obviously never dis- distributed, but DC had something to do with it, so they Ooh. have some sort of connection. Yes, this may qualify as an urban legend of I, comics. I think like, Kevin McGuire heard of it. I but think nobody's Kev, no, ever I've, seen it. I've seen it. The online, right? Kevin Smith wrote it, and Kevin no, McGuire Kevin McGuire, Kevin McGuire. Right, yeah. Oh, together the Kevins. Yeah, it, it, I would not be completely surprised. I would not be surprised at all if Kevin Smith wrote it, but because he KFC, the first that K stands for Kevin, right? Uh, no, it's well, it stands for Kevin and probably ketamine, and you know the number one source of uh, fried goods for uh, successful movie dudes who decide to become stoners late in life. When they filmed Mall Rats, there was a KFC in that mall, and he got free chicken the whole month they made that movie. Oh, who's the Kevin with the last name that starts with C? Uh, Callis- Kevin McAllister? Kevin freaking Kelly. No, Kevin Kelly. That's, that's not a C. That's a no. K. Yeah, Kevin, no, Kelly Kevin, all- Kevin Kelly also being one time, well, not one time, but actually several years, a presenter and talking head and interviewer on the pre-name change WWF, I believe participated in many of the Attitude Era most memorable segments, like say, uh, interviewing the late Brian Pillman at his house, who was like standing there at his kitchen table holding a gun to defend himself against the then heel Stone Cold Steve Austin, and Kevin Kelly being there just freaking out. All the, then all of a sudden you you know. Um, it's a very tense situation. Then the lights go out. You just hear a gunshot. And I don't even remember if they actually ended up addressing what the hell happened there. All right, we heard Stone Cold Steve Austin outside. He's been making his way around all the way to the back of the house, screaming and yelling. Pillman's got this pistol out, and I don't know what the hell is going on here. This is ridiculous. Pillman's got this. Um, what the? What the hell is that? Did somebody call the police. It's Austin! Get out of there! Don't go in there! Don't go in there! Kevin Kelly also being one to um, one of the one of the backstage guys to you know to one of the interlocutors to Dwayne Johnson as he went from Rocky Maivia into becoming his into you know helping to transform and to to birth the 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 Rock as it were. Wow! I had to birth a Rock once. It wasn't pretty. 
You know, Kevin Kelly, The Rock, says this. You ask The Rock about WrestleMania. You ask The Rock about No Way Out. You ask The Rock about Cactus Jack. Well, let The Rock ask you a question. Have you ever had any pie? Yeah, Rock. As a matter of fact, I had a piece of apple pie earlier this afternoon and it was very delicious well it looks like you've had more than one piece of apple pie obviously kevin but the rock's not talking about apple pie the rock is talking about poontang pie as we're getting older you can you know you can you can the uh, stones yeah, I was to say, yeah, maybe that's what that's to. what ultra you know ultrasonic i think ultrasonics are developed to the point where they can uh, they can attack they can uh, go at you and uh, and break those up you know kind of uh you know, in utero. It was, a, it was a number two. You know, Bob Mould had a uh, brief career, or maybe not so brief career in wrestling, as a... Uh, it's pretty amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. Donald Trump had a brief career You in didn't wrestling. hear that interview with Bob Mould on... Uh, I did, but I don't remember him. He was a huge part of that interview. Hmm. His if, whole career with wrestling. Before we get in, uh, let's talk wrestling, Bob. Sure. Don, you got a question. I do. Bob. We're kind of curious, Bob. You know, what is it about the fine, fine sport of professional wrestling that drew you in when you were a kid watching it on TV and you had to be in front of that TV set every week? Same thing that it is now. It's the stories. It's the stories. You know, back, you know, back when I was a kid in the early '70s, I started watching watching professional wrestling. It was. Uh, very much a good and evil situation, you know, and, and, and I think as, you know, our society has changed, you know, those lines get blurred, you know, we look at, you know, we look at our president, we look at Sable, we, you know, we do these things, right, people, you know, it's, it's all, it's all different shades of gray now that we, uh, that we see on our professional wrestling shows, but uh, when I was a kid, it was the stories, the athleticism, um, you know, just watching somebody cut a good promo, you know, that's the, that's the whole thing. Right. He, well, he, he was. Would, they would watch the uh, competitive, oh, yeah. like the whoever the competitor wrestling league was. They would watch them because they started an hour earlier or half an hour earlier. No, what? Well, and I can see with this. If, Clear if, me up here. Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to get into it, here's what really happened. That was the era that Bob Molds was a writer slash like booking. Um, Writer, booking coordinator, you know, uh, assistant coordinator, whatever, would come up with the plot lines. And yeah, if you look what at his title, be creative consultant, I guess. Yeah, if you look at because oh. I know he stood behind the curtain and he would tell people what to do as they went out. Yeah, he was in 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 what they call gorilla position, named after one of the greatest wrestling broadcasters and play-by-play men of all time, Gorilla Monsoon himself, having a long career that where he, uh, you can still find. Uh, wrestling handbills advertising Gorilla Monsoon wrestling in Portland at the Expo Center. Anyway, oh man! Um, but Bob Mold was, in fact, if you look at the look at the liner notes, I remember Portland wrestling. Look at the liner notes on Bob Mold's album Modulate, his like elect his kind of ill-conceived electronic album. Well, the one of the two that was came out there. One was called Loud Bomb. One was called. Uh, one was Loud Bomb, which is all electronic. One was Bob Mould, which is just the kind of like guitars and electronics. And he dedicate he gives special thanks to Kevin Nash and Kevin Sullivan and other late '90s uh, WCW um, performers and writers. Cause, you know, just straight calls them out. And back then, so amazing. One of the cornerstones of punk rock or post punk in this country ends up being in pro wrestling as one of the manipulators. 
But well, you know, the designers, so to speak, what would be the correct term? Bookers, I don't know, but... goon, to be a booker. Booker, a book. You, uh, the guy, the man with the book is the the fellow with the book. The booker is the writer, the guy um, who comes up with the override overarching plot lines. Okay, as Not... opposed to the booker at a club who would be like, "Hey, come bring your band in this night and play some music." Right, which is the original, which is how the term because originally that's what bookers did, and the the workers. You know, figured out what they were going to do beyond that, and they just kind of get spun off on its own. You know, like I said, this is all this all car- comes from you know the Carney life and their particular um, their particular uh, uh, subculture. I bring this up because of <laughs> about earlier in term we mentioned the ascendancy of like of nerd shit of like the, of like a massive cash cow thanks to um, you know multinational media corps realizing that the most predictable and and easily predictably monetizable monetizable is that the way how you say that word that's it's not a it. word it should be right but our nerds if you want to be a uh, to be a an it outcast is. nerd among outcast nerds be into pro wrestling because pro wrestling due to i don't know if it's due to the it, both class uh class um connections as well as like jock and athletic athletic connections is all will all will i don't think will ever be as equally accepted as you know as, as a valid nerd thing to like say standard superhero sci-fi fantasy horror shit well back i don't know, when i started reading comics no i didn't know anyone else that was reading um and that when you first started talking about this it made me think of doctor who actually because when i was i used to i still watch doctor who but when i was reading back or watching that yeah nobody uh, yes yeah 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 i i loved it but i never had i never knew anybody else that would was watching it or would talk about it but it was just something i was just into and um then about when they did this relaunch in 05 yeah i um uh, probably so probably maybe a year after that i was at a anime kimori con festival here in portland and uh I, I just on a whim i brought some doctor who stuff that we happened to have at the shop that probably wasn't selling very well and people were so excited about it like it was really amazing to me to see like there were all these young people just really excited about it and yeah. i was like wow I was funny i couldn't even find i couldn't find anybody that was excited about it back when i was watching the day and now all these this whole new young audience was so excited. It just really, really blew me away. One of the reasons why um, I think my my probably my only other major creative outlet that I ever did while after I moved to Portland was hosting my uh, my biweekly. Uh, in fact, you guys still have an, you guys still have a flyer for it in your basement. <laughs> my biweekly night of british tv which i cleverly yeah. titled jeremy's cleverly titled uh british tv night was because completely out of realizing you know i got i got into doctor who late i think late 07 and caught up and then and then realized hey wait a minute this is you know this is portland and the, uh, the you know that the, the one hipster bar downtown which i will not mention because i don't even know if it still exists but if they do it's exist it's not there anymore oh good you know f them in but they had that. They had that side screen. Well, they had that side. And the only reason I bring this up is because they had that side screening room where you could very easily, you know, host a night. And I just talked to them like, hey, you know, on like a Tuesday night, you know, can I come in? And you guys don't have to pay me anything. You might be able to, you know, if you could give me like dinner and drinks, that'd be great. But I can, I can load this place up with like, you know, Portland alcoholic nerds, and just to, you know, just for a couple hours every night, you know, just screen stuff, everything from either like classic british sitcom stuff through like new episodes of doctor who you know new and old stuff thank you 
you know, thank you, Internet and BitTorrent for making that easily accessible. But that, that all started because I just wanted to have a night, which I think I've talked about um, on an earlier episode. In fact, yeah, the episode number two of this very podcast, we talked about, you know, of I just want I just wanted to have a night a viewing night with a bunch of people watching uh, Doctor Who. But then that was in 08, 09. You know, fast forward because streaming everything is the thing. There's no longer, I think, I personally do not have that much of a drive for it. And there's not as much need to have, because this stuff is, you know, the BBC finally got smart in, uh, and <coughs> Netflix and streaming got, uh, was, is now developed enough to the point where, you know, there's no, you know, there, I guess there's not much, there's not much of a need to have screenings of these things. And there's, even though there's still plenty of options, you know, opportunity for doing that, but. Is Dark Space speeding? Like uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Space? I haven't seen that streaming on Netflix or Amazon. Maybe Boosh is available. Uh, they, they, it is, but it's on another. It's on the comedy uh, streaming service called CISO. Oh, CISO. I've heard of them. Which I believe has both. Uh, they have both Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and Man to Man with Dean Lerner, the follow-up series. Yeah, that was not as great, but still pretty fantastic. Because Richard Ayoade... Yeah, is one of the top talents yeah. in international cinema. Very much so. And TV. And uh, speaking of international talents of in uh, in uh, TV and cinema, how did you guys go f- from actually being a buying club to opening up a commercial space, or wanting or wanting to ju- to dive to somehow suicidally leap into? <laughs> I mean, yeah, this was this was this was pre. Pre-modern Portland, so it probably Andy the... did that all on his own. Mm. I, I feel like I jumped in like day three of the store. I um yeah I just um he found a space. Well, when we had this buyers club, um we yeah, were it went for a few years. It did, but it's also kind of shifty because through the distributor, the comic distributor, you're not really they're not supposed to. Allowed buyers club, technically illegal. Technically, so I um, civil law. Not part of me law. in the back of my head, I was like, oh, maybe I could just find some cheap. I, I started getting the idea in my head. I was like, if I could just find some cheap hole in the wall place, maybe for a hundred bucks a month, it might be feasible to just use that as our because they need you to have a brick and mortar collection. His garage had started bulging like a cartoon <laughs> garage, too full of stuff. That too. I was running out of space, but and uh, and at that point in my life, my kids were in school, so I had some free, except for my youngest. So when I found this location in Northeast Portland, I was like, there was parking. It was reasonably cheap. It was more than a hundred. It was eight hundred. I think was it? I can't. It was eight hundred square feet. I feel like it was a little cheaper in rent though. Five or seven hundred, maybe seven hundred. Somewhere between four and eight. And so, uh, and so I made a little like play area in the back where my son could. So he, I was envision, I was gonna try to, which was the hard. I'd say easily the hardest year of the store for me. It's trying what to, normal people would call a couch being, with a foot of clearance in front of it, with a TV and some. And he, we would sit on the Two couch and read comics. Oh yeah, and there was a TV and we he could watch movies and stuff. And humble, humble. that was the hardest year for me, just trying to be a parent and try to try to uh run the shop too and build the shop because it was starting a comic shop from scratch is really not impossible but really the odds are, are How he statistically now? he won't tell me it's very secretive he's 15 so, he's 15 now. okay from humble beginnings so he was 12 he was two 
<laughs> Twelve two. <laughs> you're two. That sounds right. Responsible parenting, uh, having your in, your toddler wandering around the uh, the wreckage of your early retail shop. <laughs> yeah, you would sit on the couch and your feet would touch the wall. Being two, though, he didn't he have that same problem. One. Yeah, no, he had more room. He, <laughs> he had a little yeah. more room than adults. And bet, yeah, and I wouldn't let many other adults sit on the couch. It was, that was his couch. It was the uh, ladies and gentlemen. Portland used to be a place where you could do that. Through the the history of the store, I'm starting to see a theme of couches. Like I would like to see a couch coffee table book of retail comic shops, just their couches and big color widespread photos. Yes, who prioritizes the comfort of their <laughs> patrons? Go, um, going back to something I think I brought up because this is going to be the rare time where I actually remember to tie up a uh, to attempt to tie up tie into a thread. Sure. Brought it before, but, you know, because conversation with me is it's not really a thread; it's kind of a tapestry. And maybe if I'm lucky, I remember to tie these threads together. Wibbly wobbly. Yeah, timey wimey. Um, how since you guys have been in the game for so long, how have you seen either the either business or the changing demographics of clientele, even in a town like Portland, change with the change of pop culture as and popularization and acceptance of what well, you know previously um, um, ostracized, no, ostracized nerd shit. We've seen a, a huge increase in interest, but not on the same level as other media. So, like, where our sales have doubled i would say movies and tv have seen their participants sales contributors uh customers revenue yeah their revenue has expanded by 100 to 500,000 times i mean when you compare the blade to the avengers movie yeah 98 blade to did not set sales records the first avengers movie is maybe the top is the fourth top grossing film of all time three uh check it's in the top five or ten yeah i'd have to check box office so the companies are yeah making huge amounts of money but people who actually would sell a physical copy of that movie retail space is the comics market has increased a lot but it's still like whereas a superhero based cartoon will now capture five to twelve percent of the world population the comics market will capture half a percent of the american population i don't know if this is true but like and i'm ta- i'm taking this question and i'm taking it different than you're taking it but um and i haven't really thought about this a lot before at this very second but uh we're comic think- retail space we're thinking show <laughs> comic retail space has in portland seems to have really been growing over the last uh 10 years but like even I mean, we kind of try to model ourselves more after a bookstore than a comic store. Yeah. But bookstores in Portland have really been shrinking, obviously, over the last ten years in general. Actual bookstores that and uh, and obviously movie music and 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 uh, movie stores of and video rental places. Those everything else seems to be on the shrinking side because of yeah that the technology yeah that that's something I, I'd never thought about how brick and mortar what trad media outlets physical have cratered media. physical well, physical media has cratered yet um 
comic shops, and more importantly, and it, it, it has been noted in other places how like Barnes, Barnes and Noble has morphed from a trad uh, book and book and mortar bookshop, book and mortar, brick and mortar, Rick and Morty. Yeah, why don't they call you? Why don't they call the you know start calling them Rick? You know these the uh, you book know, and Morty. Yeah. Hey, book, how you doing? Oh, jeez, oh, jeez, brick, what are you doing? Uh, mortar. Anyway, sorry, I, I can't do, uh, I can't do Justin Roiland voices. Um, but Barnes and Noble has. You walk into a Barnes and Noble, and the amount of they always had like separate media, but like the, the fact that they brought in so much, like so much of uh, Barnes and Noble is now a toy shop, mm. uh, more so than just like a book and coffee joint. Yeah, they have a lot of pop figures. Last yes, time I was there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of curious as I uh, like how much the, the the increasing popularity and distribution numbers of Funko have contributed to uh, the Barnes & Noble's bottom line. And I say that as someone who hates Funko Pop figures, even though I have a uh, a Fallout Pip-Boy. Um, right there. Yeah, uh, over there on the on top of the uh, the desk shelf of, uh, of figures. we got a Metroid Samus right behind him, so that's totally fine. Yeah. Who knows how much Funko has contributed to Barnes & Noble's bottom line, but uh, they're like 0.003% of our sales. Yeah, and, and even uh, our sales have doubled since five years ago. Barnes and Noble, like ago. I don't think they, um, I don't know, I, I, unless they're doing a huge amount. I mean, amount of space when I saw it was like two. There was maybe ten by ten square feet of uh, of space devoted to them. So I, I mean, I'm sure they're selling some, but I don't. It's in percentage of the store, the Lloyd Center one. It wasn't. It wasn't a huge amount. That's true. Unless they're doing a lot of online sales of them, which they usually could. I well, but I think it's hard that, to think. Yeah. Then again, I, I'm wondering if, but also, but but that Barnes and Noble was part of a mall shop. If you went to a a standalone big box shop uh, set up for Barnes and Noble, uh, where you know one actually has like you know the one or two stories. And just how big of the floor space? Like I said, we live in an era where Barnes and Noble is now a major distributor of Lego. But what they have Legos there? I didn't even. Know. Oh yeah, <laughs> I believe oh, it. Wow. They, uh, I think the market the markup is not quite as bad as Toys R Us's twenty percent markup, really? but it's uh, it is it's not you know <laughs> so that, yeah that that's the gamut. Your um, you have Toys R Us is more expensive than Barnes and Noble, which is more expensive than Fred Meyer as a, as your Lego distribution point. So wait, who's the worst? Who's the worst for if you're buying Legos? Who who's the most expensive? Toys R Us. Okay, okay. They uh, just uh, they have which is a drag because Toys R Us will have, you know, um, the best selection. They devote well, a lot of space. Well, they devote a lot of space to the point where at some point dur- during the dark times of Lego, and I and well, and I really need to have. I think if I can get April, uh, April and Michelle from Guardian Games in here, or maybe Cable, or maybe a bunch of people. Cable, yeah. Yeah, just get like, like I can do like a good two hours just on Lego alone. <laughs> the dark, the long dark night of Lego in the late nineties, early aughts, where they were. Um, I think I remember reading about how like Toys R Us executives mentioning to each other that they thought they were far more invested in Lego continuing as a thing more so than Lego executives seemed like they're doing. I don't know if that was the hmm. culture thing between American wow. corporate types and the Danish or whatever, but it was a. Um, you know, like I said, it was a thing where uh, <laughs> that's the weird thing. Uh, um, both changing production techniques and video games saved Lego. Hmm. 
right, that concludes part one of our two-parter with Adam and Andy. Part two should be posted within a few days. Stay tuned. Tell all your friends. Find us at soundcloud.com slash mic, or you can always email us at givingthemike at gmail.com. Bunch of extra credits, yada, yada, yada. Oh, yeah, we have a Facebook group now, too, which is just at facebook.com slash mic. Thanks. Thanks.